Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. If you have a structured exercise plan, here, I'm going to give you the depressing. I'm going to give you some good news and some depressing news. The good news is if you're just starting out on an exercise plan, generally anything works. Why? Most of the adaptation is neurological. So if I start an athlete out that's like never trained before, this is generalized to the general population, and we they've never done a like a um, a planned exercise program that's periodized with strength training, you know, they're going to get better for a limited period of time. It isn't about being perfect; it's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable, everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health, and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I am bringing you a conversation with sports scientist Eric Corum, and we are talking all about how to unlock better physical performance, how to develop better psychological flexibility, how to improve your health without losing time, and even how to make friends. Yeah, we even went there. So a little bit about Eric. Eric is a sports scientist with a passion for solving the data to action gap that exists in the wearable tech and M health space. He is the founder of AIM7 and spent over 15 years working as a sports scientist and high performance director in the collegiate and professional football world. He holds a doctoral degree from the University of Kentucky in exercise science with a research emphasis in how sleep impacts the brain's ability to adapt to stress. So as you might imagine, we spoke a lot about physical performance. So how do we know the exact type of intensity and duration of exercise your body is ready for? What, what metrics we should be looking? We overlay a conversation with the menstrual cycle. We talk about training residuals, compensatory acceleration, like all the cool stuff about training that you ever wanted. We talk about sleep, particularly for my women in 40s, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s that are experiencing some change in their sleep, how we can think about better sleep outcomes for better physical performance, how we can balance that parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. And then we end with community. And this is where I ask him, how do you know what a good friend is? So make sure that you tune in all the way to the end for that. Before we get to the conversation, I do just want to read a review that came in just last week from Jenny Neuron. And she says, love her podcast. Dr. Stephanie helps break down the science in a very detailed and applicable steps. Loved her approach and also all of her guests. She's a wealth of knowledge and encouragement. Well, thank you, Jenny Neuron from the United States of America. I appreciate your time that you took to write the review. Of course, it helps other people find the podcast and it is a free way 
to support the work that we are putting out. So if you, my dear Betty, my dear listener, feel like you are getting value from this podcast, I would love for you to rate us if you feel that we are a five-star rating podcast to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, to write a review if you feel so inclined, or you can rate us on Spotify as well, or leave a comment and subscribe to our YouTube channel because we're on the YouTubes as well. All right, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Eric Coram. Eric Coram, I'm so happy to welcome you to The Better Podcast. Welcome to the show. Stephanie, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm thankful for the opportunity to spend some time with you today. Yeah, I'm really excited to dive in with you. And I thought we might just jump right in. Part of I was telling you a little bit in the pre-chat, the type of person that listens to the show, she's typically, you know, maybe 35 to 55, working to try to fix her hormones, some of the age-related changes that she might be thinking about, wanting to work out in the gym, wanting to amplify her performance, wanting to augment her adaptability, her resilience, her, I like to call it cellular grit. Mm. And one of the things I thought we might start with is how we can unlock better physical performance. Like how do we know, how do we know what type of exercise at what intensity we might be, you know, if we're heading to the gym that day, or we have a plan mm. for the week that we're trying to map out, how do we know what we're supposed to be doing? This is a great question. So my background, you know, is in human performance for quite a number of years. And interestingly enough, the best athletes I worked with were mostly female sprinters. And I got to work with some for kind of a lifespan of the 20s to even the late 30s. And there's a lot of changes that happen over that period of time. But I think there's a couple like if we want to zoom back from a very high level perspective, what are the things that we need to do? right? And then the arrangement of the puzzle pieces, we can kind of get there. But we know that from the literature that we need to be doing at least 150 to 300 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week. This is like heart rate elevated exercise where your heart rate is beating faster. You, you, if you tried to do it and have a conversation, you'd be kind of on the borderline of like, eh, this is uncomfortable. That's when you know you're doing it hard enough. And then one to two total body strengthening sessions a week. If you combine those two things, the literature demonstrates that you have a 41 to 47% reduction in all-cause mortality. So, all right, that's a good place to start. Not bad. That's a good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now, what is that made up of? Let's let's look at the the moderate to vigorous physical activity. That can be things that people are classifying now as like zone two exercise heart rates above 60% of your max heart rate. This can come in a lot of different forms. So you could do this by simply getting on a bike or an elliptical or a step mill, but the heart really doesn't know what the body is doing. You could do like very low intensity circuits of all sorts of things. You could push something, do some abdominal movements, jump a little rope, maybe move a medicine ball. As long as your heart rate is elevated, the cardiac benefits are taking place. Does that make sense? And the interesting thing is, is like, as we move our limbs, there's also peripheral adaptations that occur in like our arms and our legs and different things like that. So you can get really creative. This doesn't have to be boring. So depending on what you have available to you, I know people that set up little circuits in their house or on their sidewalk and do some calisthenics and then they'll do a little, you know, light squats, 20 reps. As long as their heart rate's still staying in the zone, they could go for 30, 40 minutes and and it's more functional in nature. 
And then there's these things that are like very high intensity exercises. We may consider them high intensity intervals where maybe you're getting up to 85 plus percent of your max heart rate. The way this is really interesting, the literature kind of gives you a two to one benefit on this. So for every one minute, I should say one to two, for every one minute of like high, high intensity exercise, you get two minutes of of credit. So if you did 75 minutes of like high intensity interval work, now you're going to get, you know, 150 minutes of credit towards your 150. The difference though, is you have different adaptations. So these low zonal types of training lead to what's called eccentric cardiac hypertrophy, which means the left ventricle of your heart, like you actually increase the cardiac output. So you can actually pump more blood per beat, which your cardiologist is absolutely going to love. It also stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is going to help you be in a more relaxed state. You know, we talked about the gas pedal and brake of the autonomic nervous system. When we were working, my background was in, you know, human performance and sports science. When we would see athletes that were chronically sympathetically dominant, their heart rate variability was really, really low. We would have them do a lot of zone two work, especially outside in green spaces to kind of kick back that parasympathetic system into place. So I just kind of want people to understand, like from a heart rate elevated perspective, there's a lot of ways to do this. And so you can be really creative about what you enjoy. If you like to swim, if you like to do it in a group training session, but you need to kind of have a mixture of both. When it comes to the resistance training component, it really start, It really depends on where you are in your fitness journey. So the most important thing to train for strength and hypertrophy, which everybody should, everybody needs to be lifting weights. And I've seen your videos, like you are lifting to improve strength and hypertrophy. Why is this important? Well, because as we, the muscle number one is like a metabolic sink. It's really hard to have bad blood sugar levels when you have a lot of muscle. Also, as we age, we don't want to be losing muscle mass and be affected by things like sarcopenia. But you have to stimulate or create a mechanical tension on the muscular system so much so that it's actually forced to adapt. So if you're not like if you're not forcing adaptation, you're not getting better. So if you haven't done anything and you go start doing kneeling push-ups, guess what? That's enough stimulus to force an adaptation. But if you can crank out 20 of those, well, guess what? Now it's time to start pushing some weight. Does that make sense? And so there's a lot of ways to do this, but for the most part, you need to be engaged in some resistance training where you're hitting the entire body at least twice a week. And the volume of this can change. So like if you're at the very, very beginning of your journey, you may only need three sets where you're actually really, really working hard. As your journey continues, I've been training three, four years, it's going to take more sets to elicit an adaptation. But more, more I kind of want to pause there. Yeah. Just kind of get the global structure in place first. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, 
probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines, chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness, it helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate's important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Elementy Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. So when we're talking about 150 to 300 minutes per week, of some type of cardiovascular activity. I often get, it's always my gym girlies that are always like, well, can my resistance training, Mm. (laughs) can my resistance training sessions count as that? Because if I wear a heart rate monitor and I've noticed Uh this on myself as well, certain, you know, I split out when I'm, when I'm working out, I split out body parts. So I will train only legs. I will train only back. I'll train only shoulders. So shoulders doesn't give me quite the same heart elevating activity to your point, right? As something like a leg workout does at the end of the leg workout, you know, I have to go home and shower. All of my clothes are sticking to me. Like I'm totally drenched in sweat. So this is for the, this is for the gym girlies that are listening. Can we also use when we're, when we're using or we're recruiting more or some of the big muscle groups like back and legs for, at least for me, those are the big, uh, the big workouts where I'm drenched. Can those also count towards our 150 minute per week requirement of cardiovascular training? I would say yes. And here's why the the heart doesn't discriminate. It's just like, this is kind of an in-between subject right here. So this is a little bit of Eric Corum. I think you do need at least one or two bouts of week of at least 30 to 40 minutes of just consistent heart rate in the zone to like elicit steady the state, adapt- like a yes. steady state cardio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To elicit those types of adaptations, because what you're really doing is, is whenever you present the body with a stress, it's being forced to adapt to that stress. And so when you're in that zonal range, the cardiac 
musculature is going to start remodeling itself to be more efficient. Does that make sense? However, like when we would work out athletes, we're like, you know what? We just warmed up for 25 minutes and their heart rate. Like if we put a heart rate monitor was on, was like 120 the entire time. And then we worked out for another 75 minutes and their heart rate was like in and out of these zones. Of course there was cardiovascular adaptations, right? But is it as strong as when you're just consistently in that zone? No, but look, like if we can get most people moving for the 150 to 300 minutes a week, and it's a blend of, they did a bike and they did some workout, like a like strength training sessions, and then maybe they did some funk. I'll take it. You know what I'm saying? Like from a general health perspective, but if you're looking for a very pointed, specific adaptation, then you need a very like a like an arrow type of approach to this. Like if you want to get strong, you need to go to the weight room and you're going to have to lift very heavy and you're going to have to hit some volume over a period of time. And you're not going to want to blend it with other competing adaptations. But I would say for the general public, yes. But like if you look at the entire 60 minute session, maybe only 20 minutes got your heart rate up high enough to really kind of count. But we've actually been tracking this for the this app system I built with a team. And, and we started looking at it like, you know what? A lot of these strength training sessions, you're getting a pretty good dose. So there, I, I don't think there's a lot in the literature on this, but I would say you get a very generalized effect. Okay. That's good to know. Work capacity. Yeah. Well, I mean, I train, so I train, I'll just sort of lay out, I train five days a week resistance training. And then there's two days a week where I'm doing dedicated. It's either like the stair mill, as you mentioned, I have a bike at home that I like to ride on, or my husband and I have recently taken up squash because we like to kick each other's butts. <laughs> we are both very, <laughs> com- very competitive. I turned into a feral maniac on <laughs> the squash, <laughs> the squash course. I didn't know that I had this in me, but I am like grunting and screaming. And <laughs> anyway, it's the best hour of my week. It's the best. <laughs> I love it. So we we're trying to be very conscious about also getting in that cardiovascular benefit mm-hmm. with pointed cardiovascular sessions, something like squash, again, it starts, stop, right? You're running and then you stop, you're running and then you stop. Although it's very quick, something like a stair mill or a bike uh, or a treadmill is some, it, it, it can be hit if you want, or yeah. it can be steady state. I guess it depends on how you're, how you're structuring the workout. You mentioned that high intensity interval training for every minute of hit, let's say, mm-hmm. it is equivalent to about two minute, two minutes of that 150 to 300 minutes that you're trying to accrue a week. Mm-hmm. How are we determining hit? Is it based on heart rate? Is it the Maffetone 180 minus your age? Is it like what? How are we determining? It's based when? off of metabolic equivalents, METs. Yeah, and I believe I should have looked this up before, but I believe it's six METs or 5.9 METs or greater. I'm 99% sure we could Google that really quick, but I think it's 5.9 METs or greater. And this is a metabolic equivalent of how much oxygen you're consuming at rest. So at rest, I think it's one MET. And then as you kind of ramp this up, the intensity of exercise, you have to consume more oxygen, right? So VO2 max is a, is a, is a, is a measure of how much oxygen you can maximally consume in exchange. And so the everything from a cardiovascular perspective is kind of looking at oxygen consumption. And so it's a metabolic equivalent. And you can estimate that by looking at, there's a lot of ways to work around this, but you can look at it from a caloric burn per unit of time. A lot of machines have METs on them. I don't think a lot of people use them, but there's a lot of machines that have the MET equivalent on them. 
Yes, they do. But you also have to look at it for you. So actually, I just looked it up. It says seven or greater. I had to do that. I was gnawing at my brain. Thank you, Google. But yeah, that's the that's that's kind of the threshold. And so pretty much, you know, like if you take 220 minus your age, so I'm I'm 43 years old, let's say I'm 40, that's 180 beats a minute. It would be my quote maximum heart rate. And I'm trying to get into the 85% range. So a typical, if you look at the literature, like the most studied protocol is this four by four. And it's four minutes of like 85, 90% of max heart rate or higher. It's brutal. It's awful. Uh, it's awful. Yes. yes. I try to do it once a week or every other week because we want to increase our VO2 max. And that is an excellent way to increase VO2 max. And, and so, your peak and your peak heart rate as well, because we know that that also declines yes. as we age. Like you're, you're, you know, you mentioned 180 is like, you know, a general sort of peak, you, you know, I'm the same, I'm a little older than you, I'm 45. So my, my number is going to be a little bit lower than yours. But I know that when I'm get when I'm up at 180, sometimes I'm up at 185, depending on how much I've cranked the bike the resistance on the bike, like it's, it's difficult. And over time that peak heart rate declines and then your ability mm-hmm. to recover from it also declines, right? Like the time that it takes from peak back down to something that's a bit more suitable, let's say something that's right. a bit more reasonable. Your heart rate recovery. Right. The heart rate recovery also changes with age as well. So these are also, my, it's so funny that we're talking about this. I'm actually preparing <laughs> a solo episode on cardiorespiratory fitness. I'm so excited that we've landed in here. Um, Yeah. So talk a little bit about recovery heart rate, peak heart rate, how those change with age and why we need to be concerned with them. Yeah. I mean, so first of all, VO2 max is a predictor of longevity. So that's really, really important. That's the maximum amount of oxygen that you can utilize during intense or maximal exercise. So if you ever do like a Bruce protocol stress test, they put you on the treadmill and they have you go to volitional fatigue. They can they can mark when this crossover occurs. As you age, th- there's a natural decline in your maximal heart rate. You know, I wouldn't really be so much concerned about that. My father, <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen to this, but it doesn't matter. He's very, he's very fit. But, you know, he's in his 70s now and he's like, Eric, like, like my heart rate used to be able to get up to here. And now, like, am I training intense enough? I'm like, yes, you are absolutely training intense enough. Just because you're not at the 160 level, your heart just can't go up there anymore. I would probably need to go back. One thing I don't want to do is ever speak out of my rear end on the on ever publicly. And if I ever say something wrong, please correct me. I need to go back and look at why physiologically our heart rate does decline. Like anything else, these things can be slowed down. It's like for a male, like our testosterone level decreases 1% per year, right? Naturally. And I think free testosterone is like 2 to 3%. But you can push back on that by getting adequate sleep, maintaining lean muscle mass, eating good food, making taking care of your mental health. But all of these things can be slowed down, right? So like we can, like there's, if you take a, a 50-year-old person that doesn't exercise and smokes and does all this bad stuff, and you take them next to a 50-year-old person that gets plenty of sunlight and exercise and eats well, they're going to look very different. Their skin's going to look different. Their dermal thickness is going to be different, all these things. And so, you know, we can slow this down. But what you don't want to have happen is when you talk about this heart rate recovery is that your body can't quickly. So what happens is when you engage in stress, whether it's this, like, let's say really amped up to be on your show, right? Like, oh, I'm really excited. So my sympathetic nervous system ramps up. Why is that important? 
my focus is more in tune, my heart rate and blood pressure goes up, my brain and my body are preparing me to do something effortful. That is what stress is. My good friend, Dr. Alex Arbach, who's actually the director of wellness for the Toronto Raptors, uh, is the one that, that's his phrase. He's a good friend of mine. So I want to give him credit for that. But I love that way of looking at it. It's your brain and your body preparing you to do something effortful. When you engage in exercise, here's the really cool thing. We're deliberately turning on the stress system and turning it off. So there's this crossover effect for physical and psychological stress because you're deliberately switching on and off these systems. When you train the body to recover quickly, it means you're, you're physically fit. The cost of adaptation is a whole lot lower. So my body is not an overdrive consistently going, oh, from a metabolic standpoint, I need to, you know, be mobilizing energetic substrates to deal with it. No, I'm very efficient. My heart rate was up at 170. I just crushed myself for a four by four. It was up at 180. I, I hit near max heart rate. Within 20 minutes, I'm back down to baseline. That means my body is able to deal with stress and then come back down. I can hop on a podcast and be dialed in. And then I can dial it back. And the better we get at turning on and off these stress systems, we are more adaptable to other stressors. Now, if my heart rate was left at 180, I would be a miserable wreck, right? If I was there for six hours, could you imagine what would happen the next day? Like my adaptation tank would be completely drained. I would be totally worthless and I would never do a four by four again. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So as you become more physically fit, As your body adapts to that stress, you get better at turning on the systems and turning off, and their body can mobilize resources to deal with the stressor that you just placed on the body. Okay. I want to come back to that. I want to, I want to circle back to my original question around yeah. how do we know about the exact, oh, the exact yes. type of exercise that we want to be choosing? And I want to put something, I want to overlay that for women specifically. There are a lot of women mm-hmm. that listen to the show, lots of clinicians that are helping and serving women. So women who are still cycling or who are in perimenopause, let's say, who have sort of this fluctuating hormonal component over the course of 29-ish days, mm-hmm. how do women auto-regulate, let's say? So they wake up in the morning, let's say it's week four and they're feeling inflamed, they're holding water, they haven't slept well, they're hot. How do they determine what type of exercise they should be engaging in if any, and maybe we can we can provide some examples of how to modulate if you th- if you think that there is something to be said around modulating exercise around the menstrual cycle. Okay, so first of all, I do not want to be to claim to be an expert on this subject. Dr. Stacy Sims, I'd say, would be a more of an expert on training around the the cycle. There's she's, also she's coming on the show as well. So we we've been Stacy's a friend yeah, she's coming on. Yeah, she's going to crush that for you. <laughs> but I would also say there's a little bit of, you know, there's some controversy around this topic. But I would be once again, speaking outside of my domain of expertise. She's the expert that's qualified to talk about that specific thing. But let's talk about auto regulation in general. All right. Okay. So if you have a structured exercise plan, here I'm going to give you the depressing. I'm going to give you some good news and some depressing news. The good news is if you're just starting out on an exercise plan, generally anything works. Why? Most of the adaptation is neurological. So if I start an athlete out that's like never trained before, this is generalized to the general population and we they've never done a like a, a planned exercise program that's periodized with strength training and all they're going to get better for a limited period of time. 
Then what happens is, is this, these neurological adaptations begin to slow down and now you got to get a little more sophisticated. Now, here's the depressing news. Most people that are even on an organized plan, about a third of people get better, a third stay the same, and a third get worse. Why? Because the plan on paper, the stress that you're applying to the body is not adapted to what you are capable of adapting to that day. And that's, I think, what you're alluding to. Is it like if, for instance, my workout for me is to go into the gym and I'm supposed to push it heavy on squat today and I'm going to do a lower body, I'm supposed to do squats and RDLs and then finish it with some hypertrophy work. But I didn't get enough sleep last night. God forbid I got in an argument with my spouse or my kids you know, were nuts and then I had a crazy work thing. There's so only so much adaptation reserves. Now I'm going to go in and I've drained this tank. How much longer is it now going to take me to adapt to that same training stress if I was in a really great state? Could take double or triple the amount of time. Now, if we compound that, compound that with other stressors, it could be financial stress, it could be life stress. What's happening now is, is I'm incapable. I'm going to move from an adaptive state to a maladaptive state. So I'm not going to adapt as fast as I can. So when I was at the University of Kentucky, my background is in sports science and we were using wearable technology. This is over a decade ago. Like this is like pre-Apple Watch. We were the first people to ever put a tracking device on an athlete in a football game ever. And we were quantifying like what was happening on the field. And then we were looking at how people were adapting to that stress using things like heart rate variability. This is early days in something called direct current potential of the brain. We could actually measure the metabolic processes of the central nervous system. And so what we were noticing is that not everybody was adapting at the same rate. Some people, it would take three days to adapt from a game. Some people, it would take a day or to, you know, to come back to baseline. So what we started doing is, is going, Dr. Chris Morris, who kind of coined this term fluid periodization, was like, what if we start modifying our athletes' training sessions based off of their state of adaptability? So if they came into a training session or an exercise session and we measured their heart rate variability and we looked at some other things and everything was baseline, we would just do the program as as was. That was kind of like the everything's normal. Let's just stick with the plan. Then it was like, okay, let's just say the central nervous system, and this wouldn't be something readily available to the general population, but that was lower than normal because we could actually read like a millivolt potential. Then what we would do is anything that was strength or power related, we would reduce the volume. We would, here's the key phrase to write down, stimulate, don't annihilate. So if you're stressed out, if your body's in a mallet, like you're just not doing that great today, instead of doing five sets, do two really good sets and call it a day. Just stimulate the system. Give the body enough to go, okay, there's some stimulus in the system. I'm good to go. It's going to retain that quality. Let's say the heart rate variability was down. Then we'd be like, oh, you know, like their HRV is lower. So they're in a sympathetic state. We're not going to push them really hard on maybe some of these high intensity interval work or something that's lactic inducing. We're going to lower the volume of the training session. Maybe we'll do some zonal work. Here's what happened. After eight weeks, we had an off-season program with SEC football players. Now, this has been duplicated with men, with women, and in the general population. Those that used a fluid system where we adjusted their exercise daily based off of how they were adapting to stress, 
Yeah, I'll, I'll send you this dissertation. Head anywhere between is like 54 and 590% more improvement in things like peak vertical power, horizontal power, lean body mass, aerobic capacity. It was wild. That, Here's the those numbers are, say those numbers just again. I don't think, I didn't believe you when I just heard you. I'll send say you the, the dissertation. God. It was like 54% to 590%, but it was for different variables, right? So the different wild. variables you can look at. I will send you the dissertation when we yeah. get off here. Yeah, yeah. And so here's the interesting thing, the commonality between the people. And so these are people that were doing the same program side by side. One person was being adjusted daily. The other person just did what was on paper. The group that had the best results did 10% less work. Now, how demoralizing is that? Here's the point. When the body is ready if the body is kind of in a normal zone, a normative zone, just do what you got planned. When it's better than normal, do more if you can or go harder than you should, than you had planned. And if you're in a state that's maybe suboptimal, do the minimal effective dose. So minimal effective dose is like this. If I went to a doctor and they're like, hey, Eric, you got a headache. And the doctor, I'm not prescribing aspirin, but I'm just as for a story. The doctor's like, here, here's an aspirin for, for a headache. Would I take the entire bottle or take five if one gets the job done? I hope not. Or like here in Texas, if there's an anthill in the backyard, I could just go out and like put some stuff on it. Or am I going to take a grenade and go put it on the anthill? No, it's too much. It's like way over. So the right dose is what we're looking for. So you're like, okay, great, Eric. This was like a lab. These are like elite athletes. Like, what about me? So one way you can do this is most of wearable devices now have heart rate variability. If you want to do it manually, or if you have an aura ring or something, you can look at your average heart rate variability and you can kind of look at a DV, you know, a deviation from the norm. We use effect sizes, but you could just kind of go, is this, to, is this way higher or way lower? If it's kind of in and way higher is not always good. That's where most of these devices fail you. If you have an aura or a whoop, they will say if your HRV spikes, they're like, oh, this is great. That is not great. That means your autonomic nervous system is pushing on the brake pedal and it's telling you to slow down. You want consistency. And if over time your HRV trends up, that's good slowly. That means it's a consistent adaptation. So if you have something that's really high or really low, you may go, maybe my body's dealing with some type of stressor. Maybe I'm going to A, I still want to go lift weights, so I'm just going to drop the volume or the total number of sets in half, and I'm going to feel good about what I did today. B, I'm not going to lift weights, and I'm going to go do some type of low-intensity aerobic exercise and focus on recovery or my mental fitness. Call it a day. Or C, I'm just really not feeling it. Go for a long walk, do five or 10 minutes of breathing, and be like, we're going to live to fight another day. Because if you just keep digging yourself a hole, a lot of people have a hard time getting the results that they want because of all the other competing stressors in their life. Does that make sense? It totally does. And understanding that you're not an expert in, in you know, overlaying this with the menstrual cycle. I did write a book about menstrual cycle, syncing with the menstrual cycle around we should, eating and training. Which I, I would love to hear what your 
what your hot take is on this then. Yeah, well, I, I would say that the there are times when in the cycle that we're sort of generally firing on all cylinders. It tends to be in the first mm-hmm. half of the cycle, the follicular phase, where we have you know, very high levels of estradiol, particularly right before ovulation around day 10, we have higher levels of testosterone. So again, marrying that with what you're talking about. So this more auto, of the weightlifting maybe. Yeah, so more of the weightlifting, going for personal bests or personal records and mm-hmm. you know, lifting heavy, going for that hot, like I talk about in, in week, you know, towards the end of week one and week two, trying to push it with like a five to seven rep set, let's say, but it's heavy yeah. weights. And by the way, I should also say that I was having a chat with my buddy Connor. He plays in he plays in the NHL, and I w- we went out for dinner. He was in he happened to be in town. Him and his uh, beautiful wife Lexi, and we we were talking about training and stuff. And I said to him, you know, sometimes I feel like so so many of us talk about how can we how can we continue to push, how can we continue to adapt, how do we how can we continue to get stronger and put on more weights, but sometimes repping out like ten perfect form perfect tempo, let's say squats or whatever the exercise is, mm-hmm. that is progressive overload. That can be yeah. a perfect form of, pro- you do 10 perfect lunges, that's progressive overload, as well as popping on another 10 on each side or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, there's there's a lot of ways to overload the system. Yeah. Yeah. Like and- so many people do not spend enough time under tension. I, you, I'm pro- you see it, I'm sure at the, at the gym as well, people are rushing through their sets. They're not doing full range of motion. They're probably lifting too much weight. And then that sort of compromises form. The movement strategy changes, the biomechanics change, you know, I they're not of- putting enough tension on the tissue either. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I, like they're, yeah. they're jerking or whatever. And, and to your point, like if you just did one ridiculously good set you'd be wiped out (laughs) yes yeah and i I sort of make the joke sometimes on the podcast there's this one there's like two guys at my gym that whenever they're doing legs they take all the 45 plates they Mm. you know it's like they put them on the leg press there's like 10 of them on each side and then the knee flex is five degrees for the you know it's like there's a five degree amount of knee flexion there's no hip flexion Mm. in this leg press and it's like okay guys Totally. But why don't we just put the, leave the ego at the door, strip off 50% of that weight and actually get some hip flexion in here. Let's just see what your legs can do. Right. So anyway, I just wanted to say that in, in the context of progressive overload, because sometimes a woman is not, and so to to continue my, my point around follicular and luteal phase, Mm -hmm. luteal phase after ovulation, a lot of women, not all, but a lot of women tend to feel more inflamed. They tend to have more water retention. Sleep sometimes is not because their, you know, temperature regulation is is changes because they're hotter under the influence of many things, progesterone being one of them. One of the things that I talk about is can we go to the gym and do higher reps with a lighter weight? So you are still moving the muscle towards muscle. I just wrote down in my notes as I'm I'm learning from you right now. I wrote down luteal phase, z- zone two, and low intensity circuits. I literally yeah. just wrote that on my paper. That's what I would be doing. I would be yeah. doing things that stimulate the parasympathetic system. So but you're not annihilate. What did you say? Don't stimulate. Don't stimulate, annihilate. Yeah. Don't annihilate. Yeah. That's what I'd be focused on. Yeah, hundred percent. And I every single time, you know, if I haven't checked my app or whatever, like where I am in my cycle, and I go to the gym, I'm like, gosh, I'm feeling a little bag today, a little tired open up my clue app or whatever it doesn't i'm not affiliated just this that's just the one i use sure and i'm like oh day 24 that's why that's why so mm-hmm. you know change i will just change on the spot because if i'm not feeling like i can do the the workout that i should be doing 
I will, I will modify it based on how I'm feeling. And it's often a higher rep set. So instead of it being five reps, like it might be in week two, it's 25 or 30. So it's higher reps, but the I'm still moving towards failure. Like I'm still getting close to, mm-hmm. uh, mu- I don't get there, but I'm I'm moving towards muscle. How failure. many reps in reserve do you usually leave in the tank? I'm trying to I'm trying to leave like one to three. So yeah. I think that's a great point for the audience. Is you have to push the body to a point where there's there's a few reps that you could do really well left in the tank or else it's not going to really stimulate enough to create the changes that you desire. Yeah. And this can come in a lot of different forms, but that's really interesting. Do you use RIR RIR, or do you use like, do you actually prescribe yourself percentage intensities? I usually go with RIR. So I'll say, okay, I'm going to try to hit 25 or 30, let's say on this set. And then I will get close to, you know, and I'm sort of, and then every, every rep. like you're pushing the metabolic stimulus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because that's what I think I'm I'm best suited for at that at point that point in the cycle when I'm mm-hmm. you know ovulating or bleed week. Like I'm good for heavy stuff. I'm good for an eight rep or seven rep, five rep. Like I'm good for personal best at that time for numbers. Like I'm going for higher numbers on my squad, higher numbers on my deads, high, like everything I'm trying to go for. I love it. This is awesome. I'm learning a lot here. So follicular phase want to be pushing it a little bit harder. But I would say even during these different phases, even still and then look- even still, you could travel, kid could be sick in your yes. follicular phase, and you might be like, yeah, Steph said to do five reps, and I can't. It's like, that's okay, too. That's it's, okay. It, it's okay to change it based on what's happening in your life, the amount of stress and the amount, you know, the, the we'll call it like, al- you know, allostat- like how much load you're sort of trying allostatic to balance. Allostatic load, yeah. Yeah, allostatic load, yeah, that we're trying to, that we're trying to keep in, 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 in balance. Dr. Vladimir Isserin is the one that came up with training residuals, but strength. So we used to use this with like when you're peaking for an Olympic event, like you can't, or even like something where you're competing, like it's a big event every month or every three months, whatever world championships. We'd be like, okay, how far out from that event can we stimulate something like strength? Like we still want to hit something that's new, like in the 85 plus percent range, but how far out from an Olympic finals can I go and still maintain strength? Yeah. Roughly 30 plus or minus five days. So let's think about this. Hold this in your mind right now. If you miss your strength workout and you wait four or five days, is you real? are you really going to be affected? No, no, you're totally fine. Even from an aerobic oxidative perspective, it's somewhere probably around 21 to 28 days. You may start feeling a little bit sooner. The most sensitive qualities are those that are neurologically driven, like speed and power. So like if if you, I don't know if anybody's here sprinting, but my friend Katie Wells, she she does like pole vaulting, right? So she does a lot of sprinting. I don't know if you know what with a wellness mama. I think it's pretty cool. She got into pole vaulting with her kids. I had no idea that she was pole vaulting. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh my I goodness. actually got to help write like, she talking part of about her... wellness. He's talking about wellness mama right now. That's Katie. Yeah. Katie yeah. Wells. Yeah. 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 She's, she's been pole vaulting wow. and I got to work That's with cool. her on an outline for her kids track club. Mm. But one of the things I made sure of is like, Hey, speed is something that needs to be dosed roughly every five days, speed and power. So, and so, and something we don't talk about enough is training for power as you age. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. 
I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Let's talk about training for speed and power because those things, I know speed, we typically like, you know, we talk about strength loss, like, you know, you mentioned sarcopenia and if you're not strategic, you know, we know the data is around one to 2% a year, you're losing lean muscle mass, let's say. And with that dynopenia, so like loss of strength, osteopenia, loss of bone mass, but we don't talk about speed and speed is the, the, the decline is much greater with speed. It's something like eight. I've, I've seen data anywhere from like six to eight, and I've seen as high as 10% per year if you're not working on it after the age of 40. So talk to me yeah. about speed and talk to me about power. So I, first of all, I'm not sprinting right now. I'm 43, but I do train for power and I train, do jumping and landing and things like that. Why? Because what is like one of the most common issues as you age? Falling. Falling, yeah. These are neuromuscular qualities. And so you don't have to be, let's just get rid of this. So you don't have to be power lift, you know, like power cleaning or snatching or any of that kind of stuff to train for power. You can take any movement and do it with some velocity and train for power. So for instance, you could do, you could squat. Let's say you like to do, a. let's just take a leg press. You like the leg press and you do leg press for hypertrophy, for volume, and you do it for strength. You could lower the resistance or the total, you know, like let's say 60% of your one rep max. And as long as you're pushing it fast and hard and you're moving it with velocity, guess what? You're increasing power. There's a, there's a technique called compensatory acceleration. And that means that the intent to move the weight is there with speed. No matter how heavy it is, you're trying to move the weight as fast as you possibly can, specifically in a concentric moment. So movement. So like if I'm lowering dumbbells for bench press, I would not recommend for the general population to lower really fast and try to reverse it, but you would lower it under control and then you try to press it as fast as possibly can. Why? It increases motor unit recruitment. That's really important. The more motor so units you recruit. eccentric is slow. You're doing the eccentric slow and then the concentric is fast. You could do the eccentric fast. I just wouldn't recommend it for people, generally speaking, because you could get yourself hurt. Right. Now, with athletes, we would do a lot of fast eccentrics. I mean, we would do stuff where we would have a bar on their back and they would drop and then rebound as fast as possible. Uh, because there's something called the amortization, which is the ability to absorb force and then to like not dissipate the energy, but return it in a mechanical energy. So you have this phase of amortization where you go from eccentric to concentric. The faster that can happen, the less mechanical energy that dissipates, the more powerful you're going to be. It's like sprinters look like they're floating on and off the ground. It's because they don't, if you, 
if most if you watch most people sprint at a high speed it's like plop clump plop clump plop yeah, yeah. well when we hit the ground our feet are most like the arch of our foot is collapsing we're dissipating all this force this energy this mechanical energy into the into the ground and it's lost really great athletes are what are called elastic reactive they hit the ground and they can store and release that mechanical energy and use it to propel themselves forward so we would train things like plyometrics and jumping, but for general say population, plyos, that's what I'm doing with my son right now for soccer. So I didn't, I didn't know that this is what I was doing, but I was, I'm teaching him like, it's just heel bounces. And then we have like bouncing on and off a small elevated, you know, step. And then it's like back and forth. Cause I need him to be quick when he needs to pick up speed. He's a defender. So like when you got to run after that sprinter, that's trying to score a score or the a striker, sorry, you got to be able to, you got to be fast on your feet. You got to be light. Yeah. So parents with kids strength is easy to develop it's like falling out of a boat into water it's that simple speed and power is very hard yeah i'm going to give you one quick nugget parents out there that got their kids and like these training camps and all this kind of stuff if you ever go to a training facility and they're like oh we're going to train for speed and power and they're just repetitively doing reps they are not training for speed and power the number one rule is because you're using the phosphocreatin system, it takes a longer period of time. It's a it's a, one of the it's one of the substrates used for energy production. Okay. Without going too crazy into this, it's like these 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 energy sources, I'm just putting quotes on that, deplete within like 10 seconds, but it takes a lot longer to refill this bucket, so to speak. So for every 10 meters that you sprint or 10 yards, you need at least one minute rest. Start doing the math on that. You do a 40-meter sprint, you're resting for four minutes. When we would have an athlete do a 100-meter sprint, we were resting for like 15 minutes. Because what happens is the only way to increase your speed is to be operating roughly at around 90% plus of your maximum speed and then to recover and to repeat that. If you're just going sprint after sprint, it's just conditioning one of the other energy systems. You're not actually increasing your maximal output. So if same with power, same with strength, you need longer recovery. Now, people have a problem with that because they don't feel like they're working hard enough, but it's the only way that this works. So if you want to increase power, let's say you were doing a leg press and you did three sets of four, max five reps, because you got to get these done within less than 10 seconds, roughly. I would say stick to three to fours. Explode down slow, explode, down slow, you do four reps, you're going to have to rest about two minutes. Now people are like, oh my gosh, like if I go to my HIT class or functional strength training class, they're just going to have me killing myself during that time. Yeah, but that's because those classes are 45 minutes and they're not expecting you to be going at super maximal or like they're not expecting you to go all out at 100. But you're not building these qualities, right? That we want to talk about. Exactly, exactly. You need a balance. Yeah. So, I'm so happy we're talking about this. Goodness gracious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if you want to guild strength, yeah. it's the same way. You're going to need longer rest intervals. And even hypertrophy, there was a really great paper that came out recently. And they looked at like, if I superset something like A and B. So let's say I do a push and a pull. And the longer rest intervals between those supersets, the more total volume somebody could do, the more hypertrophy they had. So it's a balancing act, but I would just say as a general rule of, if you want to increase power or speed, you know, if you're, if you're sprinting, by the way, as an adult, don't just start sprinting. That's a bad idea. You're probably going to pull a hamstring or bloat Achilles, but one, you know, one minute for every 10 meters that you sprint, 
If you want to start developing power, you could start with jumping on a box, stepping down. Pick a box that's low. Don't pick a box that's high and you're going to scrape your shins. Jump as high as you can and then land and land soft. Maybe do four or five reps. And then what you can do is you can get some extra steps in between. Or you could do something mobility for your shoulders or neck and walk back and forth and get three or four sets of that. Then you can start doing, okay, I've been doing that for a month. Now I'm going to hold a five or 10 pound dumbbell and I'm going to do repeat jumps up and down five reps. Now we're increasing how our ability to absorb force and return that force is mechanical energy. Then you could start doing like you're talking about with your son, maybe on a six inch box on and off. Now it gets even more aggressive, but you could do this with your upper body. You can do it with like yesterday. I started my workout with power rows. So I had a bar on the ground. I rode as fast as I can and dropped it. Three reps, walked over to there's a tire. I did five rebound push-ups. I'm 43. I'm an old football player. I have joint issues, you know, but I still want to maintain power. I start all of my weight room sessions with something power oriented, and then I go to my strength, and then I go to my hypertrophy because I've just ramped up my nervous system really, really high. So my motor unit recruitment's really well. My intramuscular and intermuscular coordination's really good. Now, when I go to do a heavy bench press, I follow that up with heavy floor press and chest supported rows. It's like at another level. And your risk of injury, sorry to interrupt, but you're also your risk of injury is way lower because mm-hmm. there, you know, it's the velocity, the acceleration where, you know, we are most vulnerable to compensatory movement strategies. So if you're doing that right at the beginning, when you're fresh, when the nervous system is fresh, as you were saying, your, your propensity for injury is going to be much lower. I love that you're front loading your, your workouts with power. That's great. And I would also then say, and I love this conversation. This is such a great back and forth, by the way, warm up people. <laughs> like yes, as we please. age yes like and and it's not like touch the toes for five seconds and we're ready to go like a properly structured warm-up a sports specific warm-up like yeah for whatever five you're minutes doing. Yeah. get your heart rate elevated mm-hmm. and then if we're going to do upper body you need to be doing a lot of joint by joint movements like shoulder rolls arm rotations L- why because your joints don't get direct blood flow. You got to push fluid into those joints. It's like it's like the 10 man, right? Like you put some oil in there, all of a sudden it starts moving a lot better, right? So I spend a lot of time doing these joint by joint things, neck rotations, shoulder rolls, different movement patterns. Then I start to add a little bit of weight. My warm-up takes 20 minutes. But guess what? Then I do four really good exercises and I'm good to go. You know, and and I don't have as many issues as peers my age because I'm cu- like movement is medicine, right? I'm I'm doing a whole lot of things. I'm trying to bundle a lot because I don't got a lot of time. So I'm using my warm up as prehab. I'm using my warm up to help prevent like osteoarthritis to keep my joint range of motion. I'm challenging myself. Then I go do some power work, some strength work, hypertrophy work, and then I'll finish with you know some type of flexibility. I can get that all done in an hour. And That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of my approach. I love that too. And I, sometimes the warm up for, at least for me, I can say that it determines how heavy I'm going to go. So that's another piece of my auto regulation. So I'm mm. looking at like with a squat, for example, I'm looking at, you know, if I'm warming up, I might have like a, I don't know, little kettlebell or five, 10 pounds or something. And I'm in a deep squat, stretching out the adductor, seeing what my, my flexibility, even just my dorsiflexion, my ankle, mo, my, you know, the mobility, the dorsiflexion capacity of my ankle is. And if it's not 
there because I have one ankle that I'm always sort of watching because it, it kind of can go rogue sometimes, then I don't push it hard that day. If I can't get that tibial torsion and that nice dorsiflexion in the ankle for the squat, let's say, I don't push it hard. It'll, it'll be a lighter, it'll still be, you know, I'm still going to aim for muscle fatigue, right? But it's maybe it's going to be a lighter weight that I'm going to go for that day, irrespective of where I am in my cycle. You know, if you're a woman listening, that's how I'm going to determine how hard I'm going to push myself on some of those really important lifts. And I always put like the lifts that I'm really concerned with, you know, how you said you do your power lifts at the, at the beginning of the workout. I put the lifts that I'm most concerned with improving at the beginning of my workout. Makes a lot of sense. I wrote down three things. You got my mind going here. So when we talk about going back to your fundamental question about regulating your exercise on the daily, mechanical, okay, am, I, am I moving okay today? So like you said, you can you could have a standard warm-up you go through and be like, ah, you know what? That doesn't feel right. Don't do it. <laughs> like just avoid that. Just 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 flip the switch and go to something else. Your Physiological. Ego. Your ego is the enemy in the gym. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. want to try to push it. And the next thing you know, your back hurts and then you're out for a couple of weeks. We can look at physiological. We can look at things like heart rate variability. We can look at resting heart rate in the morning. We can look at, there's a lot of different signals that we can get off of these different things. And then also, I think the one that most people do not talk about is subjective. So when I was in sp a sports scientist, we would ask, <laughs> we'd ask these questions like, huh, I wonder if our athletes are sore. Or I wonder what their stress. So we would take salivary cortisol. Or I wonder if they're sore. We take like creatine kinase, right? And then we started realizing, you know what? If we just ask them and then we do the right math on the back end, the literature was showing that your perception of your wellness was directly related to what was happening biologically. But you had to do the right math to know is this significantly higher or lower than normal? So something that you can do, I actually created a... A free course. You can go look it up. It's uh, called uh, StopExerciseBurnout.com. I literally bought the domain for like a buck and I created a free course on how to do all this. But you can go through and ask yourself a couple questions every day, about 60 to 90 minutes after you wake up in the morning. What's my mood like? What's my energy like? Am I sore today? Am I stressed? What's my motivation like? Now, for my company, AIM7, we then combine subjective and objective measures to then tell you, you know, how adaptable you are to physical and psychological stress and then what to do. But if you were just to do this on your own in an app or just kind of keep a log, you're creating something called interoception, which is your ability to really understand what's happening inside your body. And most people, I know a lot of busy moms or busy parents, they don't take enough time to actually sit there and go, how am I feeling today? Because they're always concerned about everybody else. And what was really fascinating is when we put this thing out there, we got so much feedback from people like, you know what? I never take a minute to think about me. Now, elite athletes have sometimes too much interoception. And we, before we'd started to work out, they're like, you know, this is this, or this is like, if the Mercedes isn't perfect, you know, we'd have to tweak things. But I think in the general population, we've almost become numb to how we feel. And it's not until it's too late, like really understanding it, what is the driver? And then going, okay, now I can either do something about it. I can change my strategy today, or maybe I just don't need to engage with this thing over here because it's going to keep sucking my, my energy out. 
You mentioned before, that's so beautiful, by the way, and I think so valuable for so many of the individuals who are listening, because I think as a general rule, I would say because I work with a lot of women, women don't take the time to actually check in. They're always sort of, you know, living like, you know, in their to-do list. They're not actually checking in somatically with their body. It's like they're sort of Mm -hmm. living from the throat up, I like to say, not sort of checking in with like, how's my energy levels? Am I achy? Am I sore? How did I sleep last night? I wanted to ask you, you mentioned before, the ability to turn things on and off. So getting on the mm-hmm. podcast, showing up and crushing it, and then getting back into recovery or getting back into that parasympathetic state. I wanted to maybe talk about some of the best strategies that that you think is are worthwhile or actionable action items that we might think about for our listeners to be thinking about when you do have to perform. So you do have to be on, you do have to you know, be on a podcast or you have to, you have a presentation or whatever it is, how do we turn it off? How, so I know, and I'll, and I'll say this with the sort of asterisks and say that so many of my women complain about sleep. Like they get at the end of the day, they've been serving everybody and their mother and they can't turn it off. It's like they, the adrenaline or whatever is just going, the mind is just going they can't turn it off. So what are some things that you have found in practice personally, professionally, that help us move from our sympathetics, which is that fight, flight, freeze, into our rest, digest, stay and play, right? The parasympathetic system, the on and off switch. So how do we put on the break? Such a great question. This is like one of my favorite things to talk about. So my doctoral work was studying how sleep impacts our ability to adapt to stress. And so if if ultimately we want to get to the state at the end of the day where we can relax and fall asleep, First of all, let's all give ourselves a little bit of grace and say that it's not going to be perfect all the time. I will say last night for me was not a perfect night. Sometimes you just fall, you lay in bed and all of a sudden you're like, I'm anxious right now. I'm thinking about something. And then you have to start going back to some tools you have, but it shouldn't be 90% of the time, maybe 10%, right? So let's just start there. Like nobody's perfect. Andrew Huberman doesn't have this all figured out. Everybody has, you know, areas of their life that they struggle with. But let's, I'm going to work backwards. Okay. So there's two drivers for sleep. There's something called a homeostatic drive, which means that when you wake up in the morning, uh, you should feel recovered and rested. And as the day goes on, there's this biochemical increase of a, of something called adenosine. As adenosine builds up, you get more tired. If you drink some caffeine, it kind of blocks these adenosine receptors. So you can artificially feel awake. And then there's the circadian drive, which circadian means about 24 hours. And there are certain anchors for this circadian clock or what we call time givers or zeit givers, light, humidity, temperature, food, movement. The biggest one is light. And we're about to enter a time of the year now where like people are like, okay, I've heard about this, but it's not, it's cloudy where I live and all that kind of stuff. You need to go outside because like, there is a host of neurological and hormonal events to get kicked off by the fact of you just stepping outside because the intensity of light interacts with some cells in your eyes that there's this bundle of nerves that sits above the roof of your mouth called the suprachiasmatic nucleus or the SCN, the circadian pacemaker. And when you view light, especially if it's intense enough, it's going to kick off this cascade of events. You're Body temperature is going to increase. Cortisol is going to spike, right? So your body kind of becomes more alert. Even if it's cloudy outside, you need to go outside 
for at least 10 to 15 minutes. If it's cold, that's fine. It'll wake you up in the morning, right? But it's going to happen. You got it. Like this time of the year, there's a reason there's seasonal mood affect disorders is because we we get our circadian system becomes, it's like we're desynchronized, if that's even a word from our environment. We used to not be locked inside all the time. And so there's a lot of issues that are, that are popping up because we're knowledge workers. We sit around and hack at our computers all day and that's how we make money. There's nothing wrong with that. But we're not anchored to our environment. So I would say, number one, make sure you're getting enough sunlight. The more sunlight exposure you can get during the day, it's also going to help with melatonin production at night, which is just going to, my thing is like, don't tell somebody to sleep more. It's like, gee, thanks. It's like rubbing salt in the wound. Like, let's talk about things it's that like drink more can- water. It's like, I know, I know. <laughs> thanks. So yeah. I, it's like, let's create the conditions for this to happen. So that mm-hmm. would be number one. Number two, for me, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I left a stable job that did really well. And now I'm off doing this venture. And so I'm constantly, I feel like the gas pedals down. One of the ways that you can push back on this is walking. Walking puts you in optic flow. Okay, so have you ever heard of EMDR? It's like a light board therapy. Well, EMDR is basically hacking optic flow. Along the horizon, right? Moving left. Yeah, as you're walking, you're moving through the space, through space, things are passing by you and your eye movement naturally does this, right? And what happens is when you sit there and you're looking at this light board, it's easier to process emotional trauma. I don't know all of the physiology behind this, but I do know that when you're in optic flow, it dampens fear centers in the brain. It like suppresses amygdala activation. It's parasympathetic versus when we think about what we're doing in front of the computer, the eyes are going up and down, which tends Mm. to be at the, like it's where the pawns and the medulla, this is like super nerdy, but the pawns and the medulla where they meet, if your eyes are moving up and down, this is a stress signal often. So it's more sympathetic in nature versus the EMDR as you're talking about along the horizon. This is a parasympathetic. So you can, this is why we feel so calm after we've been outside in nature and we've gone for a five minute or 10 minute walk. It's like most problems can be solved by a 10 minute walk, maybe around the block or, you know, wherever, wherever it is that you are. I do this multiple times a day. Yeah. This now I work from home, but I think it's possible to do this anywhere. You work in an office building. I've gone and spoke to people that worked in office buildings and like, they're like, yeah, I have opportunity go walk or just go outside and people can go smoke or do whatever. You can go take a five minute stroll, break up your day with a little bit of like, Like you said, you're focused on this computer or the screen. You need to kind of go into portrait mode and kind of pull it back. And so if you can create a little bit of a rhythm, like every 90 minutes, two hours to kind of pull back, that also taps into kind of some of these ultradian cycles. So light, walking, it's not the same benefit if you get on a treadmill or a bike. So I understand we're about to move into, you know, colder seasons, but man, just bundle up and so You're different right. than a so, walking a treadmill at the desk, let's say. It's different than yeah. that. Yeah. Because the environment's not moving past you. Right. Right. Let's talk about breath work for a minute. You know, breath work is a really powerful tool. And there was a paper that just came out on resonance breathing. And really all it is is just slowing your breath rate down to like five to six breaths per minute. So, so about half, maybe, would you say? Like respiratory rates, what, somewhere around 12? For most people, yes. would you say 10 to 12? Yeah. So my cadence is typically four in, eight out. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll hold for one or two. Sometimes it's a little bit longer than that. But, you know, the breath can either ramp you up 
the nervous, you know, your sympathetic nervous system. So like if you really, my friend Lucas Rockwood calls it coffee, whiskey, and water breathing. I think it's a beautiful way of looking at it. So coffee is like, like in and out as fast as you can. Guess what that's going to do? It's going to ramp up your sympathetic nervous system. So let's say you need to go into a meeting or you need to go in a situation and you're not, you're just groggy in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. You'll ramp it up. Whiskey breathing is, I love the way you put this. This is brilliant. It's like that, you know, short duration inhale, long duration exhale. It's going to push you more into that parasympathetic side. And there's some really cool research coming out on what they're calling resonance breathing. And it's just these, you know, four to six breaths per minute, doing it for 10 to 20 minutes a day. I know that's a lot, right? I kind of break it up into chunks because I've been in a more stressful period right now. And I've been doing this personally. It's been helping a ton. I mean, ton. What have you noticed? What have you noticed? Immediate just clarity. I feel like I'm pulling down. I don't feel all the signs and symptoms that you're not wound up. So several times a day, I'll just, everybody's got five minutes. You really do. You've got five minutes. If you have to go sit in a closet, you go sit in a closet, right? I will literally right over here in just my office. I'll go sit down, set in a timer on my, in my app. And for five minutes, it takes me through this. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. I've also, when I lay down at night, I've been doing this for 10 minutes. And you know what I notice? My HRV for the entire night is higher. Oh, that's interesting. Right before. Yes. Does, that, does that affect your latency? Like what is it? Are you seeing any changes? I in go it? to bed faster. <laughs> okay. So decrease in like a decrease in sleep latency. Decrease in latency. I'm more relaxed. My HRV. Now I've only been doing this for a couple of weeks, but my HRV was up like 10 milliseconds. That's good. Yeah, that's good. That's a yeah. significant bump. And what about um, oxygen saturation? Any change? No, not really. For me, the biggest, but you also got to think too of like, now your resting heart rate is going to get down faster. So you're moving into that parasympathetic state. You should usher into sleep quicker. So these for me, like I like to talk about what works for me. There's, there's also like things that work for other people. Mindfulness is good, but that can also, when you practice mindfulness, you're harnessing your attention and awareness. So my good friend, Dr. Peter Haberl says that attention is the currency of performance. Let that one sink in for a second. Everybody, when you talk about performing, maybe it's with your spouse or a good friend or a loved one or your kids or whatever, there's nothing worse than showing up and reacting and not responding outside of your values. You can't, you know, and you're like, oh gosh, I wish I would have been more kind because that's really who I am. But you were ramped up. Your attention wasn't, you weren't, you didn't have awareness of where your attention was and you just, you know, you reacted. When you train mindfulness, mindfulness trains your awareness. Awareness then gives you agency to act in alignment with your values. Because now I can go, I can consciously process information without bias and then I can make a decision based off of who I am and what I value. Now, the process of training mindfulness is really beneficial for ramping down because when you know you're chasing that rabbit or squirrel, whatever you say, you're like, oh, my mind is over here. I don't, I don't need to be thinking about that. I'm going to shift my attention, regain control, and now I'm going to be able to ramp down my autonomic nervous system. But the actual practice of mindfulness 
increases awareness and arousal. So for some people, they fall asleep. Other people, it actually increases arousal. So I may not recommend that before bed. Body scans, on the other hand, because it's a relaxing technique where like you would go and you know, you would relax your shoulder or your elbow or your wrist sequentially. Some people call this yoga nidra. It's been called body scans for a long time. Those type of things can really put you into deep relaxation. So to recap, light, walking, breath work, body scans, <laughs> and be mindful when you practice mindfulness. I love that. There's a couple of places I want to go here. One is I wanted to talk about stress and I wanted to talk about psychological flexibility. So I think mm. that maybe, you know, when we're thinking about if someone's listening to the show and they're trying to synthesize what we've been talking about in terms of how they can live a better life, one of the things that I've often noticed, particularly with individuals who have more of a perfectionist type of tendency. They want to do everything perfect right out of the gate. They don't want to be beginners. They don't want to, you know, make any mistakes for whatever that cognitive, you know, that voice in their head, you know, that will just berate them might say. So there's, there's a certain rigidity we'll say to, and I, and I say this with love for myself as a, someone who is an active recovering, I'm not there yet, but actively recovering from some of those very rigid, you know, what my idea of perfection and success is. But one of the things that I've softened into, maybe you can say, is that, well, for me, it's like, you're not too late. You know, you're not behind. You're doing, you know, you're exactly where you should be, you know, like all, and, and, you know, when I say that, I say that with a smile because, you can, you know, deduce that the the messages in my head, the voices in my head were always like, you're not doing enough. You're not good enough. You're not, you know, you're not serving enough people. You're not helping enough people. Like you're not enough. You're not enough. You're not enough. And so the flexibility, let's say, of self-acceptance and understanding where self-sabotage comes in. I'd love for you to speak about that. I think as a high-performance coach, as you are, I'm sure you've seen this quite a bit because I think anybody who reaches any type of elite status, like we were just watching, we're going to be producing this in, in a couple of weeks. So this will still be timely. Uh, we were just watching the Beckham documentary. So oh, just yeah. sort of watching his sort of, and you can kind of see it in that he's very perfectionist. The kitchen always has to be clean. You know, someone tells him that he can't, he like, they kick him off the team. They say, you can't, you can't train with us. He shows up every day, trains his ass off anyway, you know? So he's like, I want to be there. So I'm going to show up and do so very much a kind of an all or nothing kind of guy, which I really identified with. And I'm, I, I've actually gained a, an appreciation for him that I didn't have before. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about flexibility of thought, where self-sabotage comes from, how we can begin to maybe understand where these voices come from, how they can be useful as well as being, you know, because I have a lot of love for that, you know, that voice inside me that says, you can't do it. You're not doing enough. You're not, because that, that voice, wherever it came from, I mean, I think I have a, a sense, but I'm not going to bore you with it, you know, has helped me create all the things in my life that I've created. So I am thankful mm. for it in some way, but in other ways there, you know, it can, to an extreme, it can be quite destructive. So can we talk a little bit about cognitive restructuring, how we might think about self-sabotage and reframing that? Wow. This is a loaded question. I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm pulling up notes on my, on my phone. This is something I've been thinking deeply about lately. So let's just start with like cognitive restructuring. 
It's like retraining your brain to mitigate destructive thoughts and behaviors by training yourself to be psychologically flexible. So people talk about being physically fit. One of the things I like to talk about is being mentally fit, right? And so what does that mean? I actually have a definition. It's the ability to be consciously present and to process information rationally, (laughs) rationally is the key word, and without bias. This empowers you to respond quickly to changing circumstances through committed actions anchored in your values. Okay, so what does all that mean? Peter Haberl really has had a big impact on my life. Peter is, he was the senior sports psychologist for the USOC, US Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And one time I was in an event at the USOC in Colorado, and it was like the, they had a gathering of high performance experts from around the world. I think there was 60 of us in the room. And it was everybody from the the New Zealand All Blacks to military tier one special operations units to major league, but it was crazy. But it was kind of like the heads of performance, right? And the first time I ever met Peter, he's talking on stage. And he tells this story. And you could have heard a pin drop. I mean, this there's like a small closed room deal. You got to like the best of the best are all in the room, right? And he says that he shows this picture of this guy, Sir Chris Hoy. Sir Chris Hoy is the greatest Olympic cyclist of all time. Of all time. The most Olympic gold medals ever. And when they ask, so there's this myth that the best in the world don't feel pressure. It's totally false. When they ask Chris what it felt like to race in an Olympic finals, he said it felt like he was going to the gallows. He was going to get executed. I have worked with athletes that are Olympic gold medalists, that are world champions, Super Bowl champions. And like for me, when I was coaching Veronica Campbell Brown, she's she's eight-time Olympic medalist from Jamaica. When you train for four years for an event that may take 22 seconds or less, there's a lot of freaking pressure. As a matter of fact, when she was in the bird's ass in China, there was so much, the light was so bright that there wasn't a shadow on the track. Think about that. That's insane. And so like the best in the world do feel pressure. Everybody is going to feel this. You're going to have uncomfortable thoughts, emotions, and feelings. But if you're open to them, and if you anticipate that it's going to happen, how you feel doesn't dictate how you perform. If the outcome of an event is uncertain and important, you should expect to feel uncomfortable. I'll say that again. If the outcome of an event is important and uncertain, you should expect to feel uncomfortable. Tonight, I am pitching 30 angel investors. The outcome is important and uncertain. I should expect to feel uncomfortable. But a couple of things, I train, I prepare. My team is always like, some of these people were never in sports and they're like, Eric, you were like maniacal about preparation for everything. I'm like, and they've started dubbing it the performance mentality. It's like, because when you show up, You owe it to the person that you're dealing with and yourself to be the most prepared. And if it doesn't work out, at least you can go back and say, I did my best. That's one. So anyways, I know I just want you to know that like there is going to be a flurry of emotions, whether it's about your children, whether it's about work, whether it's about a loved one. But just because you have these feelings doesn't mean you have to respond in a certain way. Okay, so how do we become more psychologically flexible? Number one, you have to know your purpose. 
Mark Twain says the two most important days of your life are the day that you're born and the day you found out why. And so it's really important that you define your purpose. Why do you exist? Most people have never sat down and actually thought like, why am I here? If you don't have a rudder, you're just going to be going all over the place. And for me, mine, mine is to, this is just personal, to use my talents to honor God and impact other people. At the end of the day, if I'm on my deathbed and I used whatever I was given to help other people, like that's all that matters, right? I know a lot of coaches that have won championships. I have a box full of rings from championships, but it sits some, I don't even know where it's at, but some of these guys, when they are on their deathbed, they alienated their entire family and loved one. They're going to have nobody there. And I didn't want that to be me. Right. And so like for you, you could be like, how can my talent, skills, and abilities be used to help impact others? These are questions you could ask. Where do I find joy and fulfillment? Why, how does my current job leave me unfulfilled? Is there work that would bring me fulfillment? What would I want my obituary to say when I die? These are some things you can kind of sit there. I know these are heavy topics, folks. So like, or just write, think it. Or like, write your own obituary. That's something, oh. that, that's something me and my husband did a while back. It's actually time for us to redo it, but we've written our own obituaries. Like, what do we want someone, what do we want, what do we want said about us? That gives you clear intentionality then to how to direct your actions and behaviors. The next thing is identifying your values. You know, Core values are non-negotiable principles that set the tone for how you want to be right here, right now. So my friend Peter says, goals are about a destination. Values are about a direction. Goals are about like where you want to go. Values are about how I want to be right here, right now. And so I highly recommend that you sit down. There's millions of values explorations you could print out online and come up with like three to four things. That are core to who you are. And those things, no matter what, don't change because you can't change unless there's a changeless core inside of you. Does that make sense? So once you have those things, you know your purpose, I know who my, what my values are, then you got to train your awareness to know where your head's at. And that's where tools we already talked about, like mindfulness can be really beneficial. Because when you train your awareness, now you know where my thoughts, emotions, and like this is where my my mind is anchored. So let's go back to Sir Chris Hoy. He said in an Olympic finals, he felt like he was going to die. But then he said, I would think about my hands gripping the steering wheel or my butt in the seat, my feet in the clips. What did he do? He shifted his attention to something he could take action on. Now... What can you do? He could take action in something that he was was a directed behavior. For us, most of the time, we're not in our Olympic finals. It could be, it's mostly interactions or a thought process, right? So now is when we take action anchored in our values. And then the last part about it is accountability. And I added this one. You need a community. You needed some friends. They're going to call you on your stuff. Like you need to give people, maybe it's one person. And I know there's trust issues and there's, we are a complex tapestry of events that are weaved together to make us who we are right now. Right. We've all been hurt. We've all been let down. We've all been, you know, but I have people in my life that I let in and then I tell the hardest things that I'm dealing with outside of my wife. 
and I give them the agency to call me on my stuff and also to be very vulnerable with. And that's hard. That's a learned skill for some of us. And so if you can do these things, it's not going to happen overnight, but you're going to be able to respond to an ever-changing and chaotic world. Like the world around us can feel like a whirlwind, but they're going to be calm in the middle of that, you know? So that's what it means to be psychologically flexible. I love that. When you were, when you had these friends that you were letting in and said, Hey, other than your wife, this is what's going on. And I'm giving Mm -hmm. you the carte blanche to call me on my stuff when I need to. How, how are you evaluating whether this is somebody that or what are, what are some of the maybe evaluation? How do you check off the, the boxes to make sure that this is somebody who has your best interests at heart, who's actually rooting for you? And I'm, I'm thinking of a Jordan Peterson video, and I know that he's a very controversial figure. However, I do think that he has said a couple of, he said some things I don't agree with, and he said other things that I do. And one of the things he's talked about is, you know, the richness in life that you have from friends and how mm. rare how how rare friends actually are and you have to be very careful about who you share things with because some people it's like a it's a wolf in sheep's clothing like they're they'll you know they're actually rooting for your demise and they're rooting for you not to succeed or maybe they just don't want you to be more successful than them i've heard alex mm. hormozy talk about this as well like when he was sleeping on the gym floor people were like you can do it and go for it and then when he was you know when he was successful you know, these little passive aggressive, like, oh, must be nice. You know, must be nice to make all the money, Mr. Moneybags. And it's like, you were the guy that was rooting for me when I was sleeping on the gym floor. Like, how mm. how do we switch that way? So what are, and I'm this is more of a personal interest question. I know this may not be necessarily part of your realm of expertise, but what are some of the things that you look for in terms of, you know, characteristics of a human that's like, this person is worth letting in. This person is worth my time, my energy, my focus, some of these other non-renewable, my attention, right? We've talked about attention, these non-renewable resources that we have. A word I've been thinking a lot about lately is character. And I don't know, I have to go back and check this, okay? But I remember there was like this minister when I was like in high school, he's talking about like a, a person you want to marry has character and character, like the root word is Keros. And I believe it means to be etched. I was actually thinking about this yesterday and like people with excellent character have an etching in them. Now, how do you get etching? How do you have, like, if you etch something in stone, like it's going to take a lot to get that to go away. You have to like scrub off the entire surface. Trials and struggles and stress. That is the people want excellent character or they want these certain things, but they're not really willing to go through what it takes to get that. If you want to be a person of excellent character or integrity, you have to have gone through some serious junk, right? Because the people that we look to are like, oh my goodness, that person is a stand up person. It's like they had to go through something to get there. So I look for people that have actually experienced life in a very difficult way sometimes and then have a you know have a vantage point that we can be mutually beneficial like hey we we have we share that we share that perspective on the struggle of life i look for somebody that's honest and for me personally a lot of the people i've met have been in my faith community but there are people that are outside of that one of my dearest friends we we have nothing of that in common 
but we're both fathers. We're both, we're in sports science together. We, we went through all, and, and it's like our careers have been parallel tracking. And there've been times where I just call him up and man, this is hard. And I'll just tell him. And then sometimes he'll just be like, Eric, you know, like maybe your perspective on this needs to change, you know? And some people call them the board of directors of your life. You got four or five people that you can go to. So like character, people that have been through difficult things. You know, I have noticed in business that people, it, I don't, this is not something I do with people that are, you know, typically in the business world with, because there's a lot of deviant behavior because people are just trying, I know what you're talking about with Alex Hormozzi, Uncle Alex, great books, by the way. So I, that's what I'm looking for. And quite honestly, folks, like you're going to have to put yourself out there at some point and you have to be open to getting wounded. And but if you're wise about the process, I think you can find maybe find one person and maybe you just take three steps on the accountability side. Love that. Yeah. Uh, one of my friends recently said this and it, the, 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 the saying stuck with me, it's fortune favors the bold, right? So you're, mm. it's, it's only ever going to happen if you try, right? And maybe you're going to, maybe you're going to fail. Maybe the friendship wasn't, and it could be friendship. It could be anything in life that you're trying for the first time may not work, but it's worthwhile. It's worthwhile to, in, in the same way that in a love relationship, you know, the the cost of breaking up and the heartache and the sadness and the grief that might follow is all worth the chance of finding love. <laughs> Maybe mm. that's just like the hopeless romantic in me, but that's how I feel about friends. Mm. That's how I feel about relationships. That's how I feel about really anything. So gosh, and I'm just, I'm just looking up at the time and we've been together for about 90 minutes, sir. Like it just flew right by. This, has this is a awesome. wonderful conversation. I'm very thankful to have met you and had the opportunity to come on. Like I've taken a bunch of notes on just things that you said that I want to follow up on. And I want to get you on my podcast. I think we'd have a great conversation. I would love to consider it a yes. You All heard right. it here first. <laughs> <laughs> Coming on the blueprint. Coming up. Yeah, exactly. I'm so excited. So excited to do that. And just want to thank you for your your focus, your brilliance, your research, your lived experience, and for sharing all of those with me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So if people want to find you, where can they find you? So I know we've mentioned already aim seven, stop exerciseburnout.com. Tell people if they want to learn more about you. You mentioned your podcast, like give a plug to where people can yeah. interact with you. Yeah, so the blueprint where I'll have you on, we we basically distill cutting edge science, leadership, and life skills into short 15-minute episodes. So I I like like let's have one subject. Here's the tactical thing. So I'd have you on and we'd record for an hour and we do three to four episodes on that. And so I just I'm trying to serve people that are really busy and like on the way to the grocery store, I'm gonna learn something today. At Eric Corum on Instagram. X and LinkedIn, E-R-I-K-K-O-R-E-M. And then if you're interested in AIM-7, if you have a wearable and you want to learn how to use it to improve your health and mental and physical fitness, if you use the code BETTER, all caps, I'll give you your first month for a dollar. Just go through our website. You can put it in the show notes. But yeah, we just launched that August 23rd. It's been basically my life's work with a team of folks that I went and basically recruited that were kind of like the OGs in sports science. It's like, let's bring all of this to the general population. All the things that we learned, let's now bring it to folks that are like we are in life and we just want to look better, feel better, perform better. And we got these wearables on and we want to make them useful. So that's what I'm doing now. I love that. Okay, we'll make sure that all of that information Thank are you. clickable links in the show notes on YouTube or Spotify or iTunes, wherever you are tuning in from. 
Again, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Likewise. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 